this morning, of course, Romans 11. Growing up in the 80s, of course, I had many a favorite rock band, but maybe my favorite was um, in, in not, not a mainstream band, but some of you may know them, a group called R.E.M., and, and if you'll let me indulge for a second by plagiarizing my sermon title from one of their songs, here it is. The title of this morning's sermon is, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. Now, if you take me to lunch, I will sing that song for you, all right? Um, I asked Joe for it this morning. He refused, okay? But nonetheless, a lot of times when we think about the end of the world as we know it, we feel anything but fine, particularly those of us who might have grown up over the course of the last 50 to 60 to 70 years. You see, in the early 70s, this book came out called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And it was a tinselating look behind the scenes at, at what's going to happen at the end of the age. And so there was lots of stuff about end times and World War III and the land in Palestine and the Antichrist and, you know, is he, is he walking around on the earth today? Um, is he Gorbachev with a little thing on his head, right? Of course, it's not because Gorbachev died, so I guess he can't be the Antichrist. And so, so a lot of us sort of grew up with this. And I remember sort of two distinct emotions, even as a child, when I thought about the end times. One, I was titillated. I was just like, I love this idea of being sort of a theological Sherlock Holmes, right? And searching every under nook and cranny and reading the headlines and trying to figure out what was up. So it was titillating, but on the other hand, it was also terrifying. I remember reading, reading books and, um, and, and watching videos that our youth pastor made us sit in front of that scared us half to death. And, and, and thinking, I'm, I'm terrified, what's going to happen? I remember walking around my house and couldn't find anybody wondering, was I the only one who had not been raptured that day? And, and of course, this, this eschatological timeline, um, been popularized in books and movies like the Left Behind series. And as I began thinking about this and just growing in my Christian walk, and even as we, we get here to Romans 11, I think something's very wrong when our primary emotions that we associate with talking about sort of end of the age sorts of things, if our primary emotions are fear, if our primary emotions are consternation, if our primary emotions are more just sort of this tintillated um, theological manhunt for clues in the Bible about how it's all going to end, I think we've missed the point. I think we've missed the point. You see, for example, when John gave us the book of Revelation, and let's be honest, there's, there's a lot of darkness there and a lot of predictions about the coming evil, but the, John's predominant purpose in writing the book of Revelation was to give you and I hope, that, that we would know, be assured of the certainty that we have in Christ, that he is coming back that he is going to judge the living and the dead, and it was to give us this sense of confidence, assurance in the sovereignty of God. And that is the same purpose Paul has in writing Romans chapter 11. So we know Romans 9 through 11, Paul has been sort of fixed on this idea of what has happened to ethnic Israel. Despite having all the advantages of being the people of God in the Old Testament, 
Yet to the present day, only a remnant, only a very small amount of ethnic Jews are a part of the church. And Paul's been addressing this issue. Has the word of God failed? Paul says no. But as we saw last week, Paul also says God's not done with ethnic Israel. God still has a plan. God is accomplishing that plan. Not only is he raising up a remnant of ethnic Jews in every generation, Paul anticipates this season before Christ returns when this great massive influx of ethnic Jews come into the church. And as we hear that, there might be a variety of questions and thoughts that we have, and we want to see this morning how Paul ends this discussion. You see, starting next week, we're into Romans 12, so begins the practical um, section of the book of, of Romans. But here he wants to say some final things about this most important subject. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning if you can, and we're going to read Romans 11, verses 25 through the end of the chapter 36. Listen to the word of God, for folks. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he, ha that he, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would fix our eyes in this passage on the most important things. And so, Father, you have given us the assurance that you are the sovereign God, that there is not a single thing that's happening culturally or across the globe that is outside of your scope. Lord, you are not surprised. You are not taken aback. Lord, your plan has not been thwarted. And because of that, Lord, we can have hope and confidence right here, right now in what you're doing. And so, Father, we pray that because of coming to see you more clearly in your word, we would be emboldened, empowered to live life's on mission. And so we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We take your seats. Paul begins this last section in verse 25, look there, with, a, with an interesting question or an interesting statement. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, 
I do not want you to be unaware of, the, of this mystery, brothers. Now, when he says he doesn't want them to be wise in their own sight, let's be honest, that's, that kind of sounds like a spanking, right? It sounds like a bit of a rebuke or a warning, and in some ways it is. Because what has Paul been trying to do in Romans chapter 11? He's been warning the Gentile Christians in the church not to be arrogant, not to be prideful towards ethnic Jews. You see, some of the, apparently some of those in the church in, in Rome, Gentile Christians, were sort of up in arms towards ethnic Jews around them. How could, how could you have a front row on the seat of redemption? How could you be God's chosen people, but yet miss the Messiah, persecute the Messiah. How is this even possible? And before sort of to cut off any hostility, any anti-Semitism, Paul reminds them, hey, wait a minute, Mr. Big Shot Gentile. Don't forget who you were and who you are. You're a wild branch. You're, you're, you were far off. You were grafted into the kingdom, not by your works, but by grace. And you stand by grace through faith. And one of the way that, ways that Paul wants to exhort us and the Gentile Christians towards a posture of humility, towards a posture of submission, towards a posture of thankfulness to God, is he wants to remind them that God is not done with ethnic Israel. They are not too far gone. And the word that Paul uses to describe this unfolding of his plan is this word mystery. And the, the, in the Greek, mysterion, and it's important we understand what this means. Mystery is not like a set of clues to figure out. Like in the 70s, I would get up on Saturday mornings, every Saturday morning, it was Scooby-Doo, right? It was Shaggy, Thelma, Fred, what great 70s names, Shaggy, Thelma, Fred, and they rode in the what? The mystery machine. And they were always looking for clues to find out to help them solve whatever the mystery was. That's not the way the Bible uses the word mystery. The way Bi the Bible uses the word mystery, and Paul uses it, it means that something that was once, was once hidden has now been revealed. Something that was at one time a secret part of the plan of God has now had the curtains roll back just a bit that we can see into his sovereign plan. And the purpose for us seeing into that sovereign plan is not for titillation or speculation or to be terrified, but to embolden us in our hope and faith. That's, that's one of the things we really want to take away from this morning is that this is not just about the future of Israel. It's about your future. It's about my future. It's by grabbing this, this vision of the sovereign God and how he is accomplishing all of his sovereign purposes that, that we have confidence in what he's doing with his ethnic people will be emboldened in our confidence and what he's doing in our lives and how we can trust him. So that's where we're going. So three things we're going to note in the text this morning. Number one, what Paul believes. What exactly does Paul believe is going to happen at the end of time with ethnic Israel, number one. Number two, why does he believe it? And three, how do we apply it? What do we do with it? So what Paul believes, why he believes it, 
and how we apply it here 2,000 years later. Let's look at, under what Paul believes, the summary statement, verse 25. This is sort of the theme verse of this whole section. It's, 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 everything sort of fits and hinges on this statement. Let's look at it in verse 25. Paul says this, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, let's break this down. We're going to camp, really camp out on this verse under this first point. The first thing that Paul wants to tell them is that this hardening of Israel that he's been talking about all through Romans 9 through 11, that, that, that's been his whole point, right? Israel's hardened. Why are they hardened? What's going to happen to them? He says something really hopeful here. He tells us that this hardening is only partial. And in and and that word partial, it, it means two things. Okay, number one, first it means the hardening upon ethnic Israel is not total. As we said last week, God is raising up a righteous remnant of ethnic Jews in every generation. Remember, we call this the Rick Feldman effect. So Rick Feldman is a brother in Christ here at Four Oaks. He's a Jew from Brooklyn, has the accent to prove it. He was once a Jew. He's now a Christian. And uh, one of his friends said, you know, if Pastor Paul mentions you one more time in a sermon, I'm going to leave the church. To which I said, all the more reason why I'm going to mention his name right there. I love that brother. Anyway, that, that, so, so one, it means it's not total. This hardening that's come upon ethnic Jews is not total. Secondly, it's not permanent. See, look at that word. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until. You see, Paul's saying something is going to change. It's not always going to be like this for ethnic Israel. On the horizon, something dramatic is going to happen to the spiritual condition of ethnic Jews. And I think this is so important because, let's be honest, what are the times in our life we feel the most hopeless? It's when we feel like there is no path ahead, that there's nothing waiting for us at the end of the road, that, that what's happened is irreversible, it's irrevocable, um, there's, there's, there's nothing can turn back the clock. But when we sense like, no, there, there's a path forward, there's, there's something here to endure, to press forward to, we have a sense of hope. Now, as Christians, we know ultimately our ultimate hope is in Christ. Well, what this simply does for the church in Rome, it reminds them God is not done. Do not despair. God has a perfect sovereign plan that he is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. So the first thing he says is that a partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Let's keep working through the text. He says, those who are burdened and broken, all Israel will be saved. Now, that's interesting. So he said, first of all, he says this hardening is partial. It's going to last. It's temporary. And when it's over, all Israel will be saved. And we have to ask, well, who is Israel in this context? Now, I raise this question because there are some who would say that Israel here 
is referring to all the Jews and the Gentiles who will one day be a part of the kingdom of God. And, and the, the reason they would say that is because of verses like Galatians 3, 7. Let's look at that. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Remember, Paul says not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're a Jew outwardly doesn't mean you're a Jew inwardly. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You're part of the, you're part of the true Israel. You're part of the spiritual Israel. You're, you're a child of Abraham. So some would look at that reality in this verse and say, well, what Paul's referring to is, is not some massive influx of Jews at the end of the time. He's just talking about all the remnant of Jews and, and the Gentiles, and they'll all be saved at the end of time. And I think, though, that's not right for, for, for two reasons. Number one, what in the world has Paul been talking about this whole time in Romans 9 through 11? He's been talking about ethnic Israel. That's the whole point. He's, dis, he's, he's trying to encourage those who are discouraged. He's trying to answer the objections of has the word of God failed. So Paul, I think very clearly contextually is looking, um, is talking about ethnic Jews. But look a little closer at verse 26 when he says, all Israel will be saved. Follow the, the, the line of thought here in these two verses. Paul says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, verse 25. That's clearly talking about ethnic Israel. No one is in disagreement about that, scholar-wise. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. It would be very unusual exegetically for the word Israel to mean ethnic Israel in verse 25, and then all of a sudden, without warning, for Israel in verse 26 to refer to spiritual Israel. I think Paul's very clearly talking about the future of ethnic Jews. But what does he mean by all? When he says all Israel will be saved, does he mean all without exception? Does he mean all the Jews who lived in the past, who perished without knowing Christ? Is that what he means? I don't think that's what he means either. That, that would be a clear undercutting of the gospel where it says only those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Paul's not setting up two different ways for Jews to be saved and Gentiles to be saved. Any Jew who comes into the kingdom of God, it will be because of faith in Jesus Christ. But, but again, who do we mean by all? Well, if your community group is getting together tonight to watch the game at 7.30 and somebody from your group comes up and says, well, tell me, who, who's, who's coming tonight? You might say, if you're a salesman, you might say what? Oh, everybody, right? Everybody's coming. Or, or who was at the game last night uh, or who was at the game last week down on campus? And you might say, everybody was there. All of Tallahassee was there. Now, obviously, you don't mean every person without exception. And that's the way the scriptures use the word all sometimes. So when it says all Israel gathered at Shechem, for example, to hear the word of the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean every single individual. That's not what we mean. What I think this means is that the vast majority of the corporate entity of Jews one day will be saved. Not necessarily without exception, but certainly 
in mass as a corporate entity. You know, right now on planet Earth, there is about 14 million ethnic Jews alive. Undoubtedly, when that day comes, when the vast majority will be called into the kingdom, there'll be even more. And we're not sure what this is going to look like. We don't know if this is like a national revival, you know, that involves the current nation state. We don't know if this is a grassroots movement. We, we don't know. We're not told. It's not particularly important. What's most important is that it's going to happen. Now, the first question, let's be honest, when we hear that is we want to we ask, well, when, Pastor Paul, when is that going to happen? Wouldn't you love to know, right? Wouldn't I love to know? The Scripture is less concerned about when it's going to happen versus what is going to happen to usher in that time. So in other words, what has to happen before ethnic Israel is converted in mass? Look back at the text. It says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? Ethnic Israel is going to be converted to the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What, is, what does that mean? That word fullness literally means to cram or to fill up to the brim. It means to like put dirt in a hole and to be filling it up and leveling it out. So all of us are familiar with sinkholes living in Florida. Maybe you've lost a home or two in a sinkhole. I'm not sure. Hopefully not. Um, but in Tennessee, we have red clay, so we know something about sinkholes as well. And there was a very, it's an infamous hill right around the corner from our house on a, on a road called Belvoir Avenue. But of course, we didn't pronounce it the correct way. It was Belvoir in East Tennessee accent, right? And Belvoir. And, and so we, we would drive by, and notoriously, at the top of this road on this little hill, the, the asphalt would be constantly sinking in. And as it would sink in, it would create this huge pothole, so the workers would have to come out, and they would fill the hole back up with asphalt, and they would put the orange cones around the hole, which we would try to steal, and that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. And the, the, the hole is fixed, except it wasn't, right? You come back the next week, and the same thing happens. Obviously, the hole was much deeper than anyone ever realized. Now, I know one of you geologists is going to email me and tell me what was really happening. I don't want to know because it would ruin the illustration. But you get where I'm going, right? Paul says that's the nature of salvation history. That's, what, that's what's happening in every generation. That the church is filled up with Gentiles, Christians coming into the church. But as one generation passes on, right, that level goes down. But God is faithful to fill it back up, right? It, it's part of the, I mean, it is a, it's a supernatural thing that we as the Christian church are here 2,000 years later because God is constantly calling people into his kingdom. Well, there will be one day, when that process will stop. 
There will be one day when the full allotment of the Gentiles will have come in. And I think Jesus gives us an idea about when that will happen, okay? And this is the only thing we'll say about timing, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So there seems to be this sense that the gospel is going to continue to go forth to every tongue, tribe, and nation, and people group, and God is going to be filling up his kingdom with people. And one day when that process is complete and the full allotment of the Gentiles has come in, it seems at that time there will be this massive influx of Jews and the end will come. And Paul wants us to know this is sure and certain. Now, you may say, well, that's great, Pastor Paul. That's awesome. But what does it have to do with me today? I've got bills to pay. I've got kids to raise. I've got a marriage to, to, to work on. I'm, 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 a, I'm a student in college. I'm trying to figure out who I'm going to marry and where I'm going to work. That's all well and good. What does it have to do with me right here, right now. Everything. Because what is God, what means is God going to use to bring the full allotment of the Gentiles in? You and me. See, Paul makes it crystal clear in Romans 10. Even saying that God is sovereign, he says, nonetheless, The way God accomplishes his sovereignty is by human means. So you go tell the gospel to everybody you know. Paul says, how will they know if you haven't told them? Parents, how will your children know if you don't tell them? This is a command. This is what God uses to make his name known. Guys, you need to understand something. The fullness of the Gentiles has not been completed yet. That means that there are still people in your life, in your neighborhood, at your work, in your dorm room, dorm, in your class, that you go to school with, that you're friends with, that you have a play group with, who don't know Christ, but yet they're part of the allotment of the Gentiles. God has many people in this city, but guess what? Many of them don't even know it yet. This is what Paul says in Acts 18. Listen, I love this passage. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believes in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be a silent. Guys, what a great mantra for the Christian in the 21st century. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. And do not be silent. Well, here's what he says. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Now, on what basis do you go on talking and sharing? Here it is. For I have many in this city who are my people. Guys, Jesus has many in this city who don't know him. That's what should intrigue us. That's what should drive us. 
That's what should excite us. You see, Paul's not sharing all of this in Romans 11 to titillate us, to send us on a theological Sherlock Holmes journey. He, he's, not, he's not wanting us to speculate. He's not wanting us to sort of live, okay, with this sort of obsessive preoccupation with how it's all going to end. He, he, it's like he's saying, stop wondering when it will happen and make it happen. Be faithful. Share the word. Wait until I bring the fullness of the Gentiles in, and then the end will come. When is not nearly as important as the what. That's what Paul believes. Second question, second point, be a little more brief with this one. Why does he believe it? Now, that may seem like a silly question to answer, because you might think, well, well Paul, Pastor Paul, the reason we believe Paul on this is that he's an apostle, and he writes scripture, and, the, and this is inspired by God, and he has authority, and, and all that is true, but that's not what I mean. Here's, here's what I mean. God did communicate with Paul sometimes in the course of Paul's ministry, which was probably some 30 years. He appeared to him on the road to Damascus. There were a couple of different visions. God spoke to Paul on different occasions. But by and large, the primary way God spoke to the Apostle Paul was through his word. I want you to think about this for a second. Paul was a Pharisee. That means he was an expert in the law. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, yet his heart was blinded as to what the Old Testament was really about. See, for, for Paul, the Old Testament was a way to pursue God by fulfilling the law. He was pursuing righteousness as if it were by works. And this Jesus character, with all this word about grace and gospel and everything else, this was a clear and present danger to the church, and he and his followers must be exterminated. Now, understand something. Paul had all this knowledge. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, which should tell you something, right? It should tell you that Truly understanding the Word of God is a supernatural act of grace where the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see. And here's what happened to Paul. All that scriptural knowledge that he had accumulated over the years, Jesus appeared to Paul, took the scales off his eyes, and it was like the floodgates were opened. And when they were opened, all this knowledge, Bible knowledge that Paul had, he immediately saw Jesus in everything. And when you read Paul's letters, can't you just see the, the Bible pour out? You sense that it's spontaneous, it's planned, it's, it's such a part of his being. Paul, as they said about one of the Puritans, that he was biblene, meaning you could poke his skin and Bible would bleed out, right? And, and this was Paul. And, and when Paul saw things as they truly are, that the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, it all came together for him. And he quotes two Old Testament passages here. It's kind of a mashup of passages. Look at verses 26 and 27. These come from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. Let me read it for us. 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In its context, Isaiah is telling Israel that Yahweh is their deliverer. And that there will come a day when Yahweh will take away their sins. As Paul is reading this, he realizes this is all pointing to someone. And listen to Romans 4, 24 and 25. I think he has this, this verse in mind. It says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was, same word, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's there that Paul realized this deliverer is Jesus. This deliverer is the one who's going to be the means by which God fulfills his covenant to his Old Testament people. And before, and as we're, before we unpack that a little more, l- l- let me just say this as a sidebar. One of the things that we learn from Paul and his command of the scriptures and his knowledge of the scriptures and the fact that the scriptures literally, literally flowed out of every pore in his body, church, you never grow past your need for the word of God. You never grow past your absolute dependence upon it for your very spiritual nourishment and soul. Because one of the things that I think can drive more liberal, progressive forms of theology and Christianity is this desire to find answers somewhere out there. We've got to find the answer sociologically, or medically, or scientifically, or culturally, or politically. And what does Jesus remind us? Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Guys, you don't find a knowledge of God and truth and reality out there. You find it right here. If it's true for Paul... He never outgrew the word of God. Do you know that Paul was in prison? Not in the notes. Here we go, though. Paul was in prison in 2 Timothy. He he was facing the last season of his life, and he asked Timothy to bring him what? The parchments. His Old Testament scrolls. Paul never grew past his need for the word of God. But two things, that's a sidebar, two things I want to say about this quotation, right? First of all, please understand something. There are not two ways of salvation, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. That would undercut the whole gospel message. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which men will be saved. This is why Paul tells them that while they remain God's chosen people, ethnically, that God will one day save ethnic Israel, right now it's not the case. Right now, he says, Jews are lost. In fact, he goes as far, look at verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Guys, you want to drop a grenade into the middle of an inter-religious prayer gathering in Tallahassee? Quote that verse. Highly controversial. 
this idea that, I mean, evangelizing anybody, of course, is the height of arrogance, right? To say that their way is not the way and that your way is the way, that's the height of arrogance. But to say it to a Jew, that, that's, that's anti-Semitic. That's what you'll be charged with. But as John Piper would say, the most loving thing that you can do for any person, but particularly for an ethnic Jew, is to share the gospel with them. Secondly, second thing I want to say, Paul is ultimately confident that God will fulfill his purposes to the Jews through Jesus. Look, verses, verses 28, he says, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. What, what, what is Paul talking about here? Here's what he means, and I think he's just sort of recapitulating what he's already said in Romans 9. Go back to Romans 9 for a second, verses 4 and 5, we'll flash it on the screen. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When Paul says that God will remember them for the sake of their forefathers, I think he's undoubtedly referring to the Abrahamic covenant. What, what did God promise Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to raise up a seed. I'm going to raise up a nation. I'm going to raise up a people. And these people will be a light to the world. And this seed will come to save all mankind. Guys, God right now is fulfilling that promise. God right now is, the, the Abrahamic covenant is why we are here, and it's the reason one day that the church will welcome in a massive influx of ethnic Jews, but it will be through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven or earth which will be saved but him. That's why Paul believes it. That's why we believe it. Now, how do we apply it? All in like two minutes. Ready? Okay. Guys, let me, let me say this. A case can be made that almost all Middle Eastern conflict, war, terrorism, religious disagreements between Muslims and Jews and Christians, everything we see happening sort of in that scope of the world, all flow from the conflict, the dispute, the fight over this little piece of land known as Palestine. I don't think you can deny that geopolitically. It is a, it's a political reality. And so as we come to the end of this chapter, there might be a whole set of and series of questions, issues for you that you might have. Well, Pastor Paul, how does what Paul is saying in Romans 11, how does that relate to the modern-day state of Israel. Pastor Paul, everything that Paul is talking about in Romans 11, how does that pertain to the, to the Holy Land? Are, 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 is Israel still God's chosen people? Do they still have a divine right to the claim of the land, knowing that they're cut off from Christ, knowing that they're still enemies of the gospel? And, and let me just say, just right up front, we're not, we're not going there this morning, Okay. Not because those issues aren't important or that they shouldn't be a focus of our study, but there, there's two reasons, okay? The first one is secondary. 
The first reason is we don't have time, right? It's Labor Day weekend and it's 12-12, all right? And we still have communion and a song to do. And so we don't have time. But, but, but I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. I want to be a good steward of this with you. Most of us have been raised over the last 75, 100 years being taught a particular eschatological framework and timeline. And I think it would not be faithful to simply drop bombs into the middle of that and drop the mic and walk off stage and like leave more confusion than there would be, than there would need to be. However, there is a venue that we can do that, and I'm going to. And so starting Wednesday, we're taking a little, little two-day break from the, the pastoral devotionals because of Labor Day weekend. But starting Wednesday, um, I'm going to spend the next week or two on this very issue in the pastoral devotionals. That is, that's plenty of time to open the Word, to unpack, to talk about the different perspectives, um, to, to, to point you to the Word of God. So those, that's every weekday morning, starting this Wednesday, 8 to 8.15. They're, they're archived. You can podcast them, and we'll talk about it more then. But that's not the primary reason I'm not going there this morning. That's pragmatic. There's a theological reason we're not going there this morning. And the reason is, it's not where Paul goes. Don't you find that interesting? <laughs> that after saying this, and leaving us all with these tintillating questions we want to know the answer to, Paul doesn't end the chapter with prophetic jujitsu or timelines, or charts. What does he end with? He ends with a doxology. An exclamation of praise. And not only an exclamation of praise, maybe the most famous of all the doxologies in the Word. This is what Paul says. Let's read it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Why does Paul end it this way? You see, next week we're into Romans 12. So begins the practical section of Romans after 11 chapters of theology. Well, why does Paul end it this way? With so many questions unanswered. You know the answer. Those aren't the most important questions. Those aren't the most important issues. The most important issue is do you know God? Do you, ha have you seen him and his glory? Are you trusting in him and his sovereign plan? Are you clinging to Jesus? You see, Paul is so caught up in this amazing mystery that he has just told us. All he can do is cry out in worship to the God of the universe. You see, I think if Paul were, were here in that way, he would say, of course Jesus is coming. Of course the church is going to win. Of course God is going to have his way. Of course he'll fill up the kingdom with the fullness of Gentiles and this massive influx of Jews. But the important question for you and I today, is Jesus your Lord? Are you trusting in him? Are you part of that remnant? Are you part of that 
enfolding of Gentiles. Do you know Jesus Christ? And Paul wants to exhort us to this reality that even though all around us give way in this life, there is no other hope, ultimate hope, than running to Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to take away. It's what I pray you take away and that I take away as we trust in him. Let's pray.